You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by former Captain Alejandro Villanueva. Alejandro, welcome to The Spear. Tim, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you here. So can you give us a little bit of your bio and background about your time in the Army? Sure. Uh, So my time in the Army, I graduated in 2010. I branched infantry uh, with a branch detail engineers, and I went to uh, IOBC... Uh, I bullock in uh, 2010, ranger school, airborne school, graduated uh, in March, and then I reported to 287, 10th Mountain Division, 3rd Brigade, and deployed to uh, Afghanistan, uh, RC South, and then I went to uh, 1st Ranger Battalion, where I deployed to RC East for uh, two deployments. And in 287, what was your job? I, was, uh, I, I first got in as a uh, assistant S3. Uh, there was a race to graduate all your schooling and be able to show up to your battalion as early as possible. Uh, I got in time, but unfortunately there was no jobs for me. So I initially deployed as an AS3. I was in charge of, I was the, I was the KLE uh, leader. So I was uh, in charge of calling all the company commanders. I run the, uh, the, the battalion AO and uh, recording uh, some of the conversations that they had with the Local elders briefed the commander, and then a month into the deployment, a platoon leader got hurt, and and I took his platoon uh, first uh, platoon Alpha Company uh, two eight seven out of Cop Sanctuary. What was going on in, in RC South at the time? So, you know, I, I was actually pretty fortunate, I guess. Uh, you know, hear President Obama come to this school my senior year and announce his strategy for a surge of, uh, I forget how many troops, 30,000 troops maybe, that would be going to uh, RC South. Hellman and Kandahar were deemed to be the uh, sort of the, the focal points of the war. At the time that I showed up to RC South, uh, they had this mentality of uh, clear, hold, build. Uh, it, was, it was an acronym uh, that, that was somewhat different. So basically the 101st, that was the unit that uh, was there before us, got cleared all the way to the Argandab River. And we were going to hold it by uh, creating a lot of uh, combat outposts and outposts throughout the AO. And from there, uh, Petraeus came up with the uh, coin principles that we had posted all over our cops. And we were, uh, you know, winning the hearts and minds. I think the battalion mission was to protect the people from Zari district and everything that we do. And from there, 
you know, this is when the the the, <laughs> the, the, the tough questions about Afghanistan uh, come up in terms of, you know, what is it that you were doing? Uh, but our job was to, you know, basically secure the area from, uh, you know, prevent the Taliban from freedom of movement, uh, find caches, and try to uh, create uh, a, sh- a government that would be able to sustain themselves. That sounds to be a pretty typical what was going on in Afghanistan time story. Was there anything unique about RC South, you know, kind of talking to your other lieutenants across the Army or in the, the Joint Service? Yeah, so I mean, I got a chance to go to both RC South and, and RC East, and I was able to to conduct missions in, in, in both main theaters of, of of operation for for Army troops. RC South, uh, Kandahar Province, Zari District was a region that was uh, pretty tough to hold because there was there were a lot of paths to go in and out of uh, the different sections and different villages in the valley. So our biggest threats were IEDs, uh, primarily dismounted IEDs, pressure plate IEDs. Uh, we did have uh, a lot of command wire IEDs as well. And then recoilless rifles and small arms fire were the preferred method of engagement uh, throughout the AO. And, you know, just like most of the places we had seasons, uh, there's, a, there's a red desert uh, just south of uh, Zari District. And so there was a lot of movement uh, back and forth from Pakistan and we would get you know, batches of fighters, uh, local ones mixed in with uh, uh, the foreign fighters. Our, our daily life was a mix between trying to conduct some of these programs to better the life of people from Zari District and at the same time gathering information to be able to uh, go after the enemy within the AO and, you know, again, prevent the freedom of movement of the Taliban that they had at the time uh, and, and being able to put pressure on specifically my AO, the Pir Muhammad School, which was a school uh, that was featured in Time Magazine uh, when 4th Infantry Division was there. And Pir Muhammad, you know, from my understanding or from, from the perception that I got, was a school that represented, in a way, what victory looked like for the United States. It was a school that would teach secular education in the heart of the Taliban's birthplace. I think Mullah Omar was from the same district. Uh, that I was operating in. And so it, ga- it gathered a lot of attentions from, uh, you know, the, I think General Petraeus came uh, to the school uh, when, he was, when he was in charge. And, and a lot of, you know, high, higher-ups, you know, would always check in, you know, to make sure that the school was secured. Unfortunately, the school was never secured, and the school turned out to be the, the, the central area where most of the fighting took place. You went from being on the battalion staff with a, a job where you got a sense of the entire AO to being a rifle platoon leader. What was that transition like? I mean, you'd been through school, you'd been here, you'd been to Ibolic and, and all of these other schools, but what was that first 24, 48 hours like? So I thought that having a job in the AS3 was incredibly, inc- incredibly useful for a young platoon leader because I was able to have a lot of contacts at the battalion level that were able to feed me information. And I was also able to see the products that not just the AS3 and the S2 were, were pumping out in terms of broader operations, the, the main focus of the battalion, like the commander's intent, but I was also able to see what other platoon leaders were doing, how they were doing it, and, and sort of what was the nature of their engagements, 
Uh, what were some of the issues that they were having? How did they conduct ammunition resupplies, medevacs? And, you know, I got a, I got a pretty good feel of the entire area of operations before I came in as a platoon leader. So I knew the roads. I knew the medevac times. Um where, you know, where, where they'd be coming from, how, how some of the medevacs would stage. And then, you know, the, the most crucial one is, is assets, is when, when was the battalion having assets and when were they not. I think those, you know, when, when you sit in the, in the, in the S3 uh, off in, in, the S, in, the, in the jock and you're able to see that you have, you know, on a specific day you have heavy pink teams or, you know, light pink teams, you know, two Apaches, one Kiowa, one not. You would know that when you were doing a mission that you could call them if you were, if you were in, a, you know, in, a, in a bind. And I think that that information, you know, was not available to, to most lieutenants because they did not uh, have that access to a commander's update brief every morning where they, they knew sort of where all the assets were going to be laid out on the battlefield. So once I got that information, once I established uh, some of these relationships, then I had a better understanding of, you know, the, the, the big picture and, and what the AO uh, was going to look like based on the commander's intent and where they're going to put all the assets for, for, for their priorities. Uh, the part that I didn't know, obviously, because I didn't do any of the training with my platoon and I didn't do any of the uh, train up leading up to the deployment was, was the platoon and, and below. And so for that, I obviously depended heavily on my NCOs, who were incredible human beings, and, and, and they set me up for success. So I got extremely lucky with the platoon that I got. And then, you know, the, the overall experience of the deployment was incredibly fulfilling. And, and as a soldier and as a warrior was, was everything that I romanticized, you know, growing up about what it was like to be a, a platoon leader in combat. Talk to us a little bit about that relationship with your NCOs, your platoon sergeant, as you, you show up to a platoon that had a different leader when they deployed. Right. I mean, I think most soldiers are incredibly professional, so they understand that these things happen. Obviously, he gets hurt. You know, th th there's nothing that, that, you know, somebody else has to fill in his shoes. Once I got to know him and we got over the tall jokes for, for an hour, hour and a half, uh, he, he showed me sort of what my daily life was going to look like. You receive, you know, we, we had a three, we had, we had three platoons in my, in my cop. So we had a rotation where one platoon would do force pro. The other platoon would do QRF, and the other platoon would have to come up with missions uh, that were, you know, in accordance with the the overall commander's intent. So the platoon leader, company commander, would sit down, decide the missions, and then you would come down to the squad leaders. You would devise the the maneuver plan, and then from there, the NCOs would start prepping for, you know, for 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 what the execution of the of the, of the mission uh, was going to be. You know, he also. Introduced me to all the different uh, groups that were in the in the cop. So EOD, if we were needed EOD, uh, our SIGINT team, if we needed a SIGINT for a specific mission, uh, mortars, and any other attachments that we might have for for a specific mission. You know, I was in charge of making sure that they were spun up and and ready to go, and they understood the plan. And then Platoon Sorry and I were able to come up with a schedule for, for both of us. There was a lot of patrolling, so uh, the, the platoon sergeant had to make sure that he stayed back and took care of the force pro slash QRF part of the of, of, of the unit. And yeah, we complemented each other very well. I had an amazing squad leaders. I found that the the the, the wealth of the knowledge and the tactical decisions were, were heavy influenced by their experience and, and, and what they knew about about the area and, and the previous month that they've had uh, when I was not there. But it you know every mission was new to all of us. Every challenge was new. And there was definitely a, a learning curve to all of us and some definite plateaus in the deployment where you start getting complacency, you start getting 
uh, different attacks by the enemy, and you always have to continuously adjust your protocols and your and, and your way of maneuver because you know at certain points of the fighting season we were getting we we're getting hit pretty good. Were the patrols you were conducting vehicle mounted, foot mounted? I would say ninety. 95% of them were dismounted. And if we had to go out of sector uh, or if we had to maybe use the support of vehicles, then we would bring in a couple of vehicles. But for the most part, we were, we're, not, very, we're not made for uh, mounted patrols. It was mostly dismounted. And on one of those patrols, you had an interesting experience. Yeah, one of those patrols, uh, you know, as I look back and I reflect on my time in the Army, specifically the war in Afghanistan and, and, and the type of fighting that we did, I, I came up. We I encountered a situation where you know no matter no matter how uh, you know you prepare, no matter how many books you read, and no matter how many people you talk to, you're always going to find a different answer or a different way of of solving this problem. And so for me, it was a very it was a very interesting experience that I had uh, in Afghanistan, and I think summarizes in a lot of ways the challenges that we faced as a country fighting uh, the Taliban and, and, and the challenges that a platoon leader has to, you know, deal with once he's, once he's deployed. So um, we, we had a prison, um, there was a prison called Sarposa uh, out in, in Kandahar where we kept a lot of the Taliban, you know, for, you know, I don't know if, I, I was never involved in the detainment of uh, or, or transporting detainees into Parawan or, or the other prisons, but I know that there was a prison called Sarposa and there was a jailbreak, and, and I think 550 fighters fled uh, the jail, and they went back to their hometowns and, and reactivated their cells. One of these fighters came to my hometown, you know, with a, with, a, with a cell, 10 to 15 fighters, and they started becoming active again. And so we started getting a lot of intel reports that this new cell was, was being more aggressive, uh, specifically intimidating the teachers at the school that we were trying to open. And so my company commander uh, got some intel regarding his whereabouts. We went down to his house, and his house was, um, you know, it, it was it, it was Sandria. It was the second largest city in 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 Kandahar province. It was a city that had in the thousands. You know, I, I'll be I don't know if I don't know if it had maybe ten thousand people, but uh, it definitely had a, a large population for for an Afghan village. And his house happened to be at the at the, at the very south. Uh, of the village. Most of the uh, enemy encounters that we had were always in what we call the green zone, heavily vegetated zone that was next to the city. So, you know, the enemy could find the cache, you know, and, and attack the, the U.S. troops maneuvering in, through the vegetation and then pull back into the city and hide uh, in, in, the, in the urban uh, terrain. So when we went to his house, uh, we, we looked through his house couldn't find him, but we started finding a lot of signs that, that he, in fact, was there. We found a small cache of, of ammunition, a couple AKs, and we started questioning his brothers uh, you know, as to his whereabouts. And, you know, you do get a lot of memories of, you know, how you conduct tactical questioning in Afghanistan. Just sort of like, hey, where's your brother? <laughs> he was like, I don't know. The, this, uh, this, this TQ, uh, we had partnered with the Afghan National Police for this specific mission. All the missions had to be partnered. And... We, we tended to like the A&P because they were less in number. So it would be easier for uh, the platoon leader or whoever was in charge to maneuver mostly U.S. troops with an element of four or five 
Afghan National Police that would basically stay around the headquarters element and just drag their AKs as they were going through their high of heroin or whatever substances they had consumed early on that day. I can't imagine being very pleasing to do some drugs and then walk around in 120 degree weather uh, and follow the Americans, you know, to, to, to the places that were taking them. So as we were occupying this compound south of the, of the village, there was a motorcycle that was approaching a, dry, a, a wadi, a, a dry riverbed that uh, was pretty long and was very utilized by farmers to go up and down uh, in order to go back to their fields and whatnot. And, uh, you know, the, the, the wadi was, was very depressed, so it had high ground on both sides that had very heavily, you know, vegetated orchards and trees. So as the motorcycle came up, we, uh, you know, we were inside, and, and, and one of the A&P that was, that was sitting outside saw the motorcycle coming and immediately opened fire on the motorcycle, knocking it down roughly 100 yards away from where we were located. The dry wadi made a, a slight bend, so we saw the motorcycle down, but we did not see a body or, or any adult males around it. The company commander heard the shots on the radio, and, uh, and he asked if we were in, you know, troops in contact, if we needed any assets. And then I got on the radio and I explained to the company commander exactly what happened. You know, hey, we just, we just have an AMP that opened fire on, on an adult male on a motorcycle coming up. Uh, Rot Mariners, I think is what we call it. We used to call the, all the routes after baseball teams. So it came up the, uh, up the Rot Mariners. You know, we, we can't see it. We're finishing up the TQ here and we'll be en route, standing by for any, uh, for any, any guidance. So, you know, I, you can imagine how this, this went by. This was CCIR. Uh, this was critical information. You know, any civilian, potential civilian casualties in, on the battlefield. So it went up to battalion. Battalion went up to brigade. And, you know, so I'm, I'm assuming that somebody at brigade headquarters just said, hey, just go out and, and, and do BDA on the motorcycle. Uh, the issue is that, you know, we only had about 14, you know, U.S. troops with about five A&P. And by the time we got the... By the time we got the, the, the order to go conduct BDA, our ICOMs started getting really active with, with a lot of chatter. So it was like, hey, I see them. I see them. They're here. You know, go get the weapons. You know, they used to call it, go get the wood. Go get the, the firewood. You know, as, as, as I turned to my, to my squad leaders to come up with a plan as to how we we're going to conduct BDA on this motorcycle, you know, I found a lot of, a lot of you know, a lot of resistance in terms of, conducting BDA for something that, you know, there was no, you know, the, the way they saw there was, there was truly no gain into checking whether somebody was dead or alive and a lot of risk just based on the fact that Faceline Mariners was one of the hottest places in the AO. And we were getting a lot of ICOM chatter for, uh, you know, a potential attack if we decided to go down this, this riverbed. So I, you know, try to talk to my company commander and I ask him if we have any assets, you know, anything they would put overhead. You know, that's usually wishful thinking when you're in the conventional army. Very, very rarely would you ever get a, a helicopter team or, you know, much less a, a drone that could, you know, see the area and make sure that there is no enemy in the area. Um, so the company commander just said, hey, no assets, just go ahead and conduct BDA. Went back, <laughs> went back to the to the squad leaders and say, "Hey, we got to do this. This is something that we have to get done. You know, what is the best way that we can possibly do this?" And you know, as we were looking down the the, the driver Wadi, there truly was no tactical way of being able to clear or even have eyes on the motorcycle without walking under the you know the, the lowest point of the riverbed, exposing ourselves on both sides to a you know the the worst type of ambush that you can think about. 
and you know there was there was a little bit of a alternative plans of just calling it and saying hey dude we checked it and there's nothing there you know and you know to give a little context i think the the five weeks prior to this to this day we had five weeks of straight casualties uh in the platoon the morale was not very high and all of us you know including myself we found ourselves finding a finding a very difficult task to justify what is it that we were doing in afghanistan what is it that uh, we were trying to do every day by going after the Taliban or even ex- exposing our, our lives and, 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 and risking our, our, our men for, for missions that we, you know, we rarely ever saw any results. And from, from, from by the looks of it, it just seemed like the war was never going to be won. And this is back in you know, 2011. So you know, I, I stood up in front of, you know, we'll hover the radio, having discussions. Nobody wanted to go. And then I just had this moment where you start thinking to yourself, like, what, you know, what are you gonna do now? You're gonna, are you gonna, are you gonna pull your rank and you're gonna order these men that have given you everything, that have um, taught you the ways, embraced you as their own, as their leader, when you have no experience, obviously, as a as a young second lieutenant, are you gonna put them in, in danger for something that that you truly don't consider to be valuable for? for anything at all. I mean, it's not, there's no way that I could look at myself in the mirror and say, you know, this mission, even if, even if we kill, even if the AMP killed a civilian, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make any difference at all. Because if I lose one of my guys on this mission, how are they going to look at me? And, and, and what kind of trust are they going to have, you know, in their leader that is basically executing orders from, from higher ups? If I don't do this and I, uh, and I tell my company commander that either I refuse to do it or I lie to him and I say that, you know, I did it and there was nothing to report. Then obviously I'm risking my integrity and, you know, potentially UCMJ and court martial for refusing to follow orders. So in this, you know, in this, in this sort of scenario, you, you, you know, where you have to think fast, where you have the company commander asking you, you know, where is it that, that, that you know, that, that you are? Have you completed the mission yet? Clearly from, you know, from looking at a map, you know, a brigade headquarters, they see where the element is, they see where the motorcycle is, and they just cannot explain how you cannot maneuver, you know, 100 yards to conduct BDA. It becomes one of those points where, like, you can't relate to anybody. You know, you're completely all alone. You've, you've, you've relied on your NCOs for, for absolutely everything. You've been following orders from your higher-ups, and they've been helping you as much as they can with as much guidance as they can provide you. But in certain moments, specifically in this one, there's no one else that you can go to, and you have to make a decision, and you have to make a decision between your mission and your men. And so, uh, it's one of those moments where I, I pleaded, you know, I asked all of them were on board, say, sir, nobody's gonna say anything, you know, just move on from this, let this one lose. And and yeah, I just stood there, you know, and I, I, I couldn't I couldn't think of myself, I couldn't I couldn't imagine walking back to the cop and having a conversation with my company commander and explain him that I did not conduct PDA, you know, when he specifically told me that, you know, battalion commander and up were waiting for the, for the report, you know, to do a false report would have been, you know, obviously not the right thing to do, but, you know, morally to send my soldiers and myself down this dried river wadi to check a motorcycle that another Afghan and Afghan national police had killed, you know, was something that I I didn't even feel was going to be something that was going to provide any tactical advantage and or obviously we, we, we lost five soldiers in the weeks before so I stood up and I said listen I'm going to go down there I'm going to take these Afghans with me we're going to walk down if anybody wants to follow me you know 
more than welcome, but this is something that I have to do. I understand the risks. You know, I understand it's not a sound tactical decision. I understand that, you know, this is this is one of those situations where you find yourself into. So I walked down and and it was crazy because, you know, usually if you're setting up an ambush, you want to wait until they're all the way in an area where they cannot escape. And that's when you open fire. Uh, but as we were maybe 40 yards down this river wadi, two RPGs uh, came out uh, from from one of the from one of the banks of the river and immediately followed by a small arms fire. And immediately we just all turn around and and headed back, dodging the bullets, sprinting to cover, falling down. I remember, I remember, you know, your training, you know, th- this is, you, you obviously sort of prepare for, you know, this, this could be a close ambush. And, and the, the first, the, you know, the first thing that they teach you is you throw a grenade and you, and you charge, you charge the, uh, you charge the wood line. And I remember, uh, you know, the first situation in my life where I had to throw a grenade and I said, okay, fuck it, I'm throwing this grenade and I'm going to try to chuck it as far as I can, hopefully create a dust and provide me a little bit of a cover. I was behind. I was behind this this giant rock, and I, you know, they they teach you to throw the the grenade sort of like like you're lobbing it, you know. But I said, you know, I'm a pretty good athlete. I'm gonna throw it like a baseball. I'm gonna hit it right in the, you know, I'm gonna hit it right over the a, a little wall, you know, the right behind there. And as I threw the grenade, my shoulder just exploded. I mean, don't don't ever throw a grenade like a baseball because it's so dense that it just, you know, your muscles are not used to it. So my arm, you know, comes out of the, comes comes out of the socket. It hurts like crazy. But by then, my you know my the, the element that stayed back in the house was able to push into the into the wood line provide support by fire and we were able to come out and then we you know we sustained a firefight for you know 45 50 minutes called in uh, air support cca they were able to do a couple gun runs and we were able to uh, you know sort of um fend off the enemy come back home never check the motorcycle so we never knew whether it was uh, a civilian casualty or not but you know after you know however many years you know 10 years you know every single time i think back at afghanistan and you know, some of the feelings that a lot of Afghan veterans feel as to, you know, what went wrong? Why is it that we don't have the closure or the feel that, you know, we we did something great that was productive that not only helped the Afghans, but it also helped us as a nation? Uh, I always think of this story. I always think about the complexity of some of the decisions that you have to make. Uh, the fact that sometimes you have to pick between two bad options, not a great option and a terrible option, those are really easy. Uh, sometimes you have two bad options. Uh, the, the human element is involved in a lot of these decisions. And, you know, you have to, you have to acknowledge uh, the fact that, you know, people have feelings and opinions about the war that, you know, you can brief to oblivion, but, you know, ultimately they're very tough to control. And some of these things you can't control. It was something that we all learn a lot from. It was something that, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't find a solution for. And for the rest of the deployment, you know, we continue to, to fight. We continue to do what we thought was best. We continue to sustain casualties. But the, the, the challenges that are faced as an infantry platoon leader, they not just consist of physical challenges, of walking up and down the hills, going through grape rows, understanding how to call for fire and pick up casualties. Sometimes they involved bigger questions that even to this day, you know, are, are very difficult to answer. How did you change from before that order to go do the BDA through the ambush and after? How did your leadership style change? How did your interaction with the troops change? I thought my men understood that I would always get creative and, and, and I have the ability to get creative in certain 
situations where you tell me it's either A or B and I'm going to try to come up with a C. I'm always going to try to come up with a, a third alternative. Uh, they, they knew that obviously my skin is in the game, that I'm not willing to ask them to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And that I obviously did not, I obviously agree with them. I obviously had the, the same sentiments, but something about my rank, something about my position separated me from them. And I don't think that they were ever going to change if that scenario would have come up again. But they understood that I couldn't not do what I was tasked to do at every single moment. So I think I, I, I kept my credibility. I learned, you know, the, the putting AMP in positions where you're isolating the objective is not the best place for them that is always best to put them inside so that you can control them and you can have eyes on them you know obviously we were not teaching the afghans how to do patrols because we knew it was a lost cause mm. you know they they had much bigger problems than being able to do battle drill one alpha they had you know crazy problems in their own country and their own lives and so i think everybody came up with different Everybody had their own story as to how they were challenged in the same way. I was not the only one. Squad leaders were put in the same position at some point or another during the deployment. Company commander was put in the same position just a couple weeks later when we had uh, an incident where motor rounds from our cop were defective. And when we utilized them, they came short and they landed on the village. And he found himself, again, in a very tough dilemma or position. And so, you know, I, th I think that we all started realizing that the war was going to be a lot more difficult from, you know, almost an existential perspective than a tactical or, you know, physical standpoint. And so we became thinkers and we became sort of more uh, reflective of our own actions, of our own convictions. And the atmosphere definitely changed in my platoon in that we, we started uh, having different type of conversations that were not so much centered around how we were going to do an objective, but why we were going to do an objective and how we were going to minimize all the risks involved so that we would not not have any casualties or not have any incidents, but we would not have any situations where uh, our convictions would prevent us from accomplishing the mission. There's kind of a long history of frontline troops looking back and anybody that's at least two feet behind them as a rear echelon. It sounds like the commands you were receiving from brigade through the battalion through the company put that into an apparent contrast. Is that something you saw or felt or? You know, it was one of these situations where we had walked that area so many times. We were so familiar with the AO. But for some reason, just that day, ICOM chatter, you always hear ICOM chatter. You can hear ICOM chatter from 50. You don't, you don't know if the ICOM chatter is from your specific AO or if it's from 20 kilometers, you know, to your east or west. So for some reason, the, the fact that we had taken casualties in different areas of the AO, that we were just starting to listen to the chatter and that things just became very eerie. It was something that you couldn't transmit. You couldn't articulate and, and intelligently communicate to higher headquarters. You couldn't say, I just have a feel that we're going to get ambushed. I don't think you could ever have that mentality of, you know, I'm not doing this mission because I'm going to get ambushed. You know, like, how, how could you accomplish anything if that was the case? So I had a lot of respect for my leaders. I thought that they were all warriors. I thought that they were, they were all willing to, um, to do anything that they were asking their troops to do. So there was no question as to whether the orders came from a good nature or, you know, any sort of morality or legality. I just think it was one of those situations where patience was running out. Uh, 
because we were having a lot of civilian casualties because we were taking too long in the communication with the radio that was that was getting frustrated when you're trying to explain something you know like this on the radio it's 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 you know you can't do it you have to sort of send short little messages and it's and it's and it's sometimes difficult to paint the picture uh, of of what exactly you're seeing. So sometimes you have to make the decision. You have to interpret the commander's decision and, and just make it on your own. So that was that was that was just a scenario where you know once I got to the 75th Ranger Regiment, I never had to deal with because you don't have an interpreter with you. You you don't necessarily care so much about the population, the village elders. You probably have never been to that village that you're raiding that night. You just you just have a, a, a more of a tactical mission that you have to execute with tremendous precision but it's not questioning whether the mission is going to be effective and if you're willing or not willing to do the mission that's that's something that you know as a special operator you don't you, you don't question you know you know you have assets you know you have everything if the mission if you're doing the missions because the mission is important but you know in the big army that, that was something that got got in the gray line and 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 I, and I know that a lot of platoon leaders face the same dilemma and you know the way that they were able to uh, go around it, determine sort of not just the perspective on the war, but, you know, whether they decided to stay in the military or get out, you know, or whether they decided to do something great in the military so they could change this uh, this war that we're fighting that we were, you know, struggling to find a little bit of meaning on. The philosophical shift in your platoon, did that continue through the rest of the deployment or was there kind of a spike and then it, it dissipated? So that was in the middle of the fighting season. Actually, the next day we had to go to the same exact spot, and we were ambushed, and we received a casualty. Uh, actually, three casualties. One of them was a KIA. So, the biggest problem that we had was learning how to defeat the enemy in every single thing that we did. You know, that was the main priority of everybody. How do we get back safe? How do we? How do we? How do we kill the enemy before they kill us? And when it came to dealing with specific situations, uh, I think something as frustrating as an Afghan local f- force shooting an Afghan, giving you the answer is like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a Taliban. I saw an RPG on his back. I think that was the part that we, that, that, that we definitely changed. We, 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 we knew that we couldn't trust uh, our partner forces. We knew that they were going to put us in very tough situations. We knew if that it had been a U.S. soldier, it would have been a lot easier for everybody to say, you know what, you know, you, you, we could have potentially killed a civilian. You know, we have to do what we can, you know, to, to, to make sure that he's okay. But the fact that it was an Afghan sort of threw us on this loop of distrust with our local forces. And the fact that it was mandated that we took these uh, local forces with us uh, influenced our perception of the effectiveness of what it is that we were doing. Alejandro, thanks for bringing that story to us today so that our listeners can can get a sense of some of the the ambiguity of, of ground combat operations. So thanks for being on the spear. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.